uh, Genesis 44. Now we're actually going to be in 45, but I'm going to start reading in 44 to bring us up to speed because there was a break uh, in the story. So, so let's start at chapter 44, and I'm going to start at verse 18. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, If your youngest brother dies, does not come down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it happened that when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair. So now, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, and his life is bound up in the boy's life. So it will be that when he sees that the boy is with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became a guarantee for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the sin before my father all my days. So now, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord. And let the boy go up with his brothers. For now, how shall I go up to my father if the boy is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? Our Lord, we pray that as we once again come to the holy, inerrant word, that, Lord, you would graciously, by your Spirit, impart illumination to our minds that we get this. Father, that the truth of the Word, uh, as, as it comes, and I pray, comes with clarity to our thinking. God, what it says, we would be happy and ready to submit and surrender to it. Father, we wish, I believe, this, this local church wishes, hopes to be right in their understanding of the revelation of God. And so, Lord, I pray with all of my heart that we would be a people who come ready to believe and submit to that which is true and revealed and clear in the Word. And that's not up to any preacher to ultimately do that, Lord. I recognize my dependency 
greatly this morning. It is completely up to you to open our eyes to the text. So, Father in heaven, would you please enable that? Amen. Quite a different story, is it not, from Judah? As, as opposed to what we saw earlier with, with Joseph as he's on his way to come check on the brothers and the brothers looked at each other and said, here comes that dreamer, here comes the interpreter of dreams. I tell you what, I got an idea, let's take his life. I've had enough of this guy, uh, he, he's just an arrogant young 17-year-old that comes and tells us about his dreams where he actually told us and dad we're all going to bow down to him. Insane, let's do that. Another brother pipes in, let's not do that, let's throw him in a pit. After all, he is our brother. Let's, let's, let's do it that way. Another brother, let's sell him. Let's make a profit off of him, the very brother I just read in this chapter. Let's sell him and make a profit. After all, he is our own brother. And so they sell him out. With their evil intent, let it sink, with the evil intentions of their heart, they sold him. There's nothing in the text that tells us that there's some kind of, uh, they're not getting off. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. With pure evil in their heart, they saw him coming with jealousy, rage. They saw red for a moment, beat up the poor young man, and we're told earlier um, in the story that he, in tears, was pleading with them to not do what they're doing to him. And with hearts of stone... They do not care. You're out of here. Now we come here. And we've read a lot. We've studied a lot in the book of Genesis. We're covering, Lord willing, uh, half of 45 this morning. And as we've been walking through this, I pointed out over and over again that there's a change in the brothers. Now, we've seen Joseph steadfast and and faithful and point to the Lord consistently, whether it was the... uh, the, uh, the deal with Potiphar's wife, or whether it was um, interpreting the dreams and not taking the credit for himself. There's all these different bits and pieces that just keep pointing to the, the quality character of Joseph, a godly quality character of this young man. And God, in his grace, has elevated him second in command under Pharaoh. He now has a wife, he now has two children, and he has said that he has forgotten the days of the past because of the joy that God's brought into his life in the present. The famine is now going on. They had the seven years of plenty. The famine is going on, and now the brothers, his own brothers, have come down once. He took care of them, sent them back, but kept one brother. Now they've come back again with Benjamin because they were told, don't come back without Benjamin. They've come back with Benjamin, and then they were going to leave with Benjamin. Joseph put a silver cup in Benjamin's sack in order that they would find that and have them come back. And all of this, in, I believe in Joseph's mind, to some level, is a test to see, are these the same men who dealt with me? Or is there something different in them? What has happened in them? Is there anything new? And is there room for God's work in the lives of my brothers? Well, it's fascinating that Joseph and his steward have both communicated to the brothers, I'll tell you what, I'm keeping Benjamin... You're all free to go. See, he, what he's doing is he's, he's uh, redesigning or redoing the same temptation, the same evil they had earlier. 
For the sake of this silver, I'm putting this silver in the, light, in the sack of, of Benjamin. As you come back, I'm telling you, you are all free to go. Take everything you came for. I'm keeping him. And in that moment, we're looking to see, so what's the response of the brothers? Are the brothers, got out of that one. You know, we, we got rid of Joseph. Yeah, that was fine. And, and Benjamin, we got rid of Benjamin. But we're still intact. This worked out well. Dad's going to cry, but he's already been crying anyways. Let's, let's just call it good and go back. Forget the boy. And Judah, in a very gutsy move, says to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, just knowing this is a man who could take my life right now if he wants to, says, can I have a word with you? A private word with you. And you see Judah reiterating the whole storyline of you said this, and we said this, then we told dad this, and dad said this, and now you've said this, and you asked about him. We never even told you we had a younger brother, so on and so forth. And it all funnels down to Judah's final reaction and response, which is, let him go and take me. Man, you imagine if at that moment when they were beating up Joseph, if Judah would have said, stop it. Just, just stop for a second, guys. What are you doing? This is our own brother. And you know what? If you're going to beat him up, you beat me up. Well, that probably, maybe, I have brothers, so maybe, maybe not. It would have turned the tide of the, of the treatment of, of, of Joseph in that moment, you guys. I don't know, but it's interesting that Judah was in the mix, and he said, let's sell him at that time. But now here, he's actually telling Joseph to Joseph's face, I will be your slave for the sake of Benjamin. Now, real quick, I think it's a cheesy answer if somebody were to say, well, they like Benjamin more than Joseph, and that's what's being communicated here. No, come on. No, I think what's being communicated here is that there's truly a transition, a chip of his brothers. God is at work in the hard, stony ground of the heart of these men. Perfect men? By no stretch. But what have we found? Which perfect men have we found in Genesis so far? Good answer. All right, so look at verse 1, verses 1 to 3. And if you're following or writing out my outline along with me, Joseph makes himself known. Joseph makes himself known. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he called out, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Then he wept loudly, and the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified at his presence. So Judah's plea to become the slave and and let Benjamin go, um, for lack of a better phrase, did the trick where Joseph saw the genuine article in Judah's plea, this man is not leaving until he becomes a slave so Benjamin can go. So there's something totally radical that's happened. Now, the text gives us this idea that Joseph, this is not um, pre-planned. <laughs> the text says he cannot keep it in any longer. This, says, this translation says he could not restrain himself. So in that moment, he tells all of the Egyptians to get out of the room. Now, the text doesn't give great clarity why he does this. 
Um, we, could, we could surmise a few different reasons probably why um, this moment was not one to be shared with strangers. I mean, talk about an intimate moment. That's number one. Uh, his emotional outburst could possibly weaken his position to them. That's possible. His desire seems to be more of an intimate moment. I, I want you all to leave. Um, I've been there numerous, numerous, numerous times with people with the death of a loved one, and that moment is a sacred moment, and that's where people need to get out of the room. And right here, there's no death, but nonetheless, an extremely sacred moment between him and his brothers. Everybody out. Now, my heart, I feel very connected with Joseph because he's, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's quite an emotional guy, and I have some of those too. And what I read of what he has happened here, I have a kindred spirit in, in Joseph. He told them all to leave, and he called out, um, have everyone go from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Then he wept loudly. How loudly? Well, Moses, under the inspiration, lets us know. And the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now, you just let your emotion run a little bit, or your imagination run a little bit with that. How loud is this outburst in this young man in the presence of his brothers to the point that the Egyptians are hearing this, Pharaoh's family's hearing this? Um, I'm sure at some point in your life you may have either had a moment like that where it was so overtaking emotionally that it became loud. Or perhaps you've been in the presence of someone where it was so over the top. And I don't mean that as a negative towards them. I just mean it was so an outburst of emotion it raised to that level of this is loud. So this is not merely Joseph going, love you guys. This is a a powerhouse of emotion in the man's heart. He just, the the dam breaks and he just spills out everywhere. As his tears flow, his his heart is out there. And I I was thinking this, this week about what emotion is he expressing? Well, it has to be mixed, I would think. Um, this is this is joy, but there's also that 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 pain, that deep seated pain that has been just pressed down and pressed down and pressed down for so long, and it all let out before his brothers to the point that everybody around heard it. Look down at your Bibles, verse three. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "I am Joseph." Is my father still alive? Now, it it shows the the intent of the heart of Joseph. The numero uno on his list is, I've got all my brothers here. I've got Benjamin here. I need to know. Mom's already passed, but is dad still alive? Now, they've already said he's still alive, but these guys don't have the best track record for honesty, so he wants to check and see, is my father still alive? My precious dad, the one who gave me the coat, the one who has shown such great love to me, is he still around? Is my father still alive? (laughs) Look at the response of the brothers. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified at his presence. 
Now, there's a lot of words that could fit within this Hebrew word. Terrified, speechless, amazed, shocked, frightened. And all of those pieced together probably gives you the idea because there's a lot of pieces here. Number one, shock because, whoa, you've been dead for 20 plus years. Right? Or, whoa, we're in deep trouble because we were the ones who sold you. I would imagine there's just all kinds of emotions pulsating, which eventually just found its way in shock. No word. They just caught off guard. I mean, think about it, you guys. Put yourselves in their sandals for a second. They're there. Judah's pleading. Think about how quickly emotionally they've got to change gears in this second. They're there pleading for the life of Benjamin. Please, you said this, they said this. Please, would you just have mercy? Or you know what? I'll just be your slave. Everybody get out of the room. Why is he having everybody get out of the room? (laughs) You can't help but think, why is he clearing the room? And then just this explosion of emotion followed by, I'm Joseph, his dad's still alive. Now you put yourself in the place. Well, what's your reaction? Uh... Yes, Um, they are so absolutely 100% caught off guard by Joseph's revealing of himself to his brothers. They simply could not believe their very eyes. Look at verse 4, 4 through 8. Joseph makes his theology known. Joseph makes his theology known. So Joseph made himself known. Now Joseph makes his theology known unto his brothers. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has set me as a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph warmly invites his brothers to come near him. Now, I made this point, I opened a sermon with this a number of months ago, but it's interesting when you read, say, a novel or you read an old Western or something or watch an old movie, how revenge is usually at the heart of those stories. And at the end, they finally get the sweet revenge. The bad guy is taken care of, the good guy is shining bright, he gets the girl, the sun's going down, roll credits. But here... Joseph does not do harm to the brothers. Joseph pours out tears on the brothers and says, come here, come near me. Talk about anticlimactic for a movie. You imagine a John Wayne movie that ends with John Wayne going, come here, come here. (laughs) Done, burn that one, I'm not going to watch that. But nonetheless, here, Joseph's reaction, Joseph's response to his brother's as you come near to me. Not only that, did you hear what he said? Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be angry with yourselves. Joseph, did you forget what happened 20 years ago? 
I mean, I can't help but think, did the brothers in that moment say, is this a trick? <laughs> Are you got something planned here where you're going to do harm? He is seeking to break them out of their shock by again stating who he is. Joseph also brought back to their memory the fact that they sold him. If you look at verse 4, it says, And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But guys, for him to say, So now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God set me before you to preserve life. Joseph seeks to put the men to rest with theological perspective. His theological, theological perspective on things. Number one, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves regarding my slavery. Number two, God himself, not you, brought me here to preserve life. Number three, two years of famine has already passed with seven more to go. And number, number four, God sent me to preserve a great remnant of survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. That statement is a statement that would be clearly made by most believers, I would think. We talk like that. We speak that way. We say, oh man, God's in the details. We say, uh, I just want to know what God's going to do in this set of circumstances. I'm interested to see what the Lord may do with. We, we, we talk like that. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. Not ask, uh, just bring to your attention, I guess. There is so much theology to do to be able to make that statement. And I wonder sometimes how much is ignorance backing that statement. So here's what I want to ask you. I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm just saying at times there can be for all of us. But when I ask you, do you believe that? Like when you make the statement, um, I want to see what the Lord is going to do. I can trust him in the circumstances. You really believe that? Because it can become instantly cliche as a believer, I think, where we say, trust God. Why? What do you really believe about the Lord? What do you believe about his will? What do you believe about his providence in the midst of our doing? What do you believe about that? So I ask you, just for a pause of reflection, to ask yourself, do you really believe that? That God's at work in the details to accomplish his good purpose every time in all things? Joseph did. So much so. Did you notice he doesn't say, you did something and God assisted in what you were doing to accomplish his will? It's not what he said. I, I, I just, there's your ink, okay? There's your ink. He says, you didn't send me. Now, every Bible student's going to raise their hand and go, yeah, they did. <laughs> right? I'm pretty sure it was their grip on his arms. I'm pretty sure it was their evil intent, putting in the pit, pulling out. I'm pretty sure they're the ones that spent the money they made from those folks. I'm pretty sure. Joseph, what are you saying in this statement? Well, I, I have to come to grips with the fact that what he's saying is that even in their evil intent, God's intent overrides it to accomplish his good purpose. Now, again, there's the ink. 
And Joseph does not skip a beat. He doesn't try to explain his theology. He merely states the, the, the fact and the reality. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. And every one of us, all of us who are Bible believers, can have a million yeah buts. But there's the text. I mean, my goodness, you guys, look, look at verse 7. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors, which is a fantastic, I, I don't have time to chase that theme of the remnant and the way in which the Lord's preserving a remnant, but look at verse 8. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has set me as a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, listen to this quote, and this is kind of where my thinking went in Donald Gray Barnhouse really touches on this. And what I'm going to is consider the variables in the midst of the statement made by Joseph. Okay, consider the variables. The jealous hatred of brethren, the dreams of a youth, the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt, the preparation of Joseph by a life of adversity, the anger of Pharaoh, and the imprisonment of two officials the strange dreams of these prisoners, and Joseph's supernatural gift of interpretation, the dreams of Pharaoh, the change of rainfall in a fourth of Africa to bring about the two cycles of abundance and famine by the flood and failure of the Nile, the elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt. All these things were brought about naturally. I love the wording. All these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God, who is Lord of all, in order to fulfill the counsel of his will. And what I, what I challenge you with from this passage is, is to let your mind just do its best to wrap around every single grain of sand affected in this storyline. Okay, And then for Joseph to say, you didn't do this, God did this. To think of the lives, the plans of those in the caravan that bought him. To think of the lives and the plans of his brothers. To think of a 20 years, over 20 year span, all of that. And Joseph makes this clear and yet vague statement, God sent me. I don't know about you, but what that does for me is it expands my perspective on my God's ability, who he is and what he can do, and it makes me feel very, very small. Joseph didn't say, and uh, you guys helped him out. That, that language is not there. Now, there's another piece, though, theologically I must speak to. In nowhere... Does it say, therefore, they were without sin, accountability, and evil intent? They absolutely were. But what I'm saying, what I believe Joseph is saying, is that even in your sinful, evil intent, God will still accomplish his good will in the end. Nobody will throw him off his game. Period. So who sent Joseph to Egypt? Was it the evil intentions of the brothers or the sovereign hand of God? According to Joseph, 
Ultimately, it was the actions of the brothers, but ultimately it was the action of God through those means to accomplish his good purpose. It wasn't them who sent him. The statement's profound. I understand that. I bow to it. That's a profound statement Joseph's making, especially coming from the mouth of the one who is harshly sinned against. Remember, guys, this is not an onlooker of the storyline. Joseph didn't tell the story to somebody, and then somebody said, oh, man, all things work together for good. Don't you know that, Joseph? This is the guy who endured the pain of these circumstances saying this, which I think adds a mountain of weight. Not only, I mean, this is the inspired and word of God, but it adds a mountain of weight when it's the man who endured the pain from the brothers to look them in the eye and say, God was in the midst of that to accomplish his goodwill. Ken Hughes says, these lines are magisterial theological declaration of divine providence that God works his will in and through the actions of all people, whether good or bad. Now, this is a theological understanding that's clearly taught in Scripture. Let me just track, take your Bibles with me. Go to Proverbs 16.9. Now, this is going to be a little bit sword drillish, okay? So track with me. Um, but I want you to hear just a few passages of Scripture. It's ingrained in your Bible. Proverbs 16, 9. Man, what a statement. The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. <laughs> it makes me think of James where he says, let's go into such and such a city and we'll make a profit, so on and so forth. And the question is... Um, Who are you? All such boasting is evil to think that you have that next day. Look at Proverbs 20, 24. Proverbs 20, 24. The steps of a man are from Yahweh. How then can man understand his way? How then can man understand his way? Romans 8, 28, I already quoted it. Um, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Another passage I have here, I'm just going to walk through these a little bit, is the thorn in the flesh. Remember with with, uh, the Apostle Paul, he says that this thorn in the flesh was given to me to keep me humble because of the great revelations the Lord's revealed to me. He refers to this as a messenger of Satan to humiliate me, to humble me. So God in his grace has put a thorn in the life of the Apostle Paul for the purpose of keeping him humble and God at work in his heart, and yet a messenger from Satan, yet given from God. You figure that out. You, we, we all must do that, you guys, as we see evil and good in Scripture, and yet God's sovereignty over all of it. We must answer how this works. Uh, there's a lot of debate about it, all that, all that stuff. I, I get that. But we've got to have some concept of how the Lord is sovereign over the evil doings of man. Now remember, the Apostle Paul prayed three times asking the Lord, take away the thorn, take away the thorn, take away the thorn. And the Lord said, no, no. And one last time, no. And Paul's response Your grace is sufficient for me. Or the Lord's response to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that he works all things after the counsel of his will. There's a ton of other passages, but I'm not going to go there. And I have one more that I want to save to the end of this sermon. 
So our dear Joseph's theological understanding was quite advanced indeed. Now this is what's so interesting, is at times we can see ourselves on this end of the cross, this end of the New Testament, we have the Bible as a whole, and we can look back on some of these men and women of the Old Testament and think, oh man, they, they, they didn't have what we have, they didn't understand what we, didn't under, what we understand. Um, apparently Joseph had a pretty good bead on the sovereignty of God to make such a statement. So let us be careful not to get too haughty to think that we may have advanced so much farther than our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament times. All right, back to Genesis 45. Joseph makes his wishes known. Genesis 45, and look at verse 9. Joseph makes his wishes known. So far he made himself known, he made his theology known, and now he makes his wishes known. Verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has set me as Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. And you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, there I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. So you must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. I'm going to sum this one up pretty quick at this point because it's fairly simple. The desire in the heart of Joseph is go and get dad. And I want you and dad, and your little ones, and everybody to come down here and settle down here. There's still five years of famine. Why this long-distance relationship? Move down here, and let's rejoin. Brothers and sisters, do you see what is in the heart of this man, Joseph? This is not vengeance. This is not disdain or some kind of uh, trick to do harm to his brothers or to his father. He genuinely, wholeheartedly, is forgiving, but not just forgiving in word, but forgiving in deed. I will take care of you. I'll take care of your family. Don't grieve over what you've done to me. God's in the midst. God has done great things here. God is the one who is my protector. And so, brothers, you're forgiven. Go get dad. Come back, and I will provide for you and take care of you. I think it's interesting, the immediacy in his language here, that Joseph so badly, I want to see dad. I want to care for you. I want to reconvene. <clears throat> I'll speak further to that in just a minute, but first look at verse 14. Joseph reveals his affection, or makes his affection known. Joseph makes his affection known. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. <laughs> such, a, such a, just a quick little glib statement. And they talked. <laughs> About what, I wonder. Um, but you see, again, this emotion. First, he had the outburst of emotion apart from his brother's. Then he called them near. They still hadn't come near. Then he expresses the, theolo the theological backing of how he can talk the way he's talking to them. Then he shares his desire for bring father back, and I want you to be here, and we'll take good care of you. But then you know what? 
he needed that good old classic affection. He needed a hug. He needed the embrace of his brothers. I tell you, there's times, beloved, where someone may be in your life, you're in the midst of pain, and they never say a word. They just simply put that hand on the shoulder, and in that moment, it means everything. And so in that moment, I'm sure there's great tears, there's joy, there's forgiveness, and Joseph is not holding in his heart anger towards his brothers because God's good. Don't let it pass too quickly. He's not holding anger in his heart because God's good. Not because the brothers were good. Not because Joseph's good. But because God's good. I want to be careful. I'm not boosting Joseph in front of you this morning. I'm not boosting the brothers in front of you this morning. I'm boosting the kindness of God in front of you this morning. God's gracious will has profoundly made itself evident in Joseph, and now he's made it evident to his brothers, and it results in reconciliation between them. Let me give you three points of application, then we'll come to the Lord's table. Number one, the grace of God in the life of his people should enable fast, sincere forgiveness of those that may have harmed them. The grace of God in the life of his people should enable fast, sincere forgiveness of those that have harmed them. Uh, I would say gospel-centered forgiveness, you could could call it. Um, Do you remember what Jesus said upon the cross? Father, forgive them? Do you remember Stephen as they're throwing rocks trying to kill him? Father, forgive Forgive them? That, it, it, it just, it's like knock you over with a feather when you see what they say in the midst of such profound impact. The grace of God in the life of his people should enable fast, sincere forgiveness of those that may have harmed them. Number two. The Christian is enabled to live a life of contentment and joy in light of the knowledge of God's sovereignty and providential care in all circumstances. All right, let me me be careful with this, okay? The Christian is enabled to live a life of contentment and joy in light of the knowledge of God's sovereignty and providential care in all circumstances. And I put in parentheses, this must be patiently learned. This is something that we learn. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, I have learned to be content in good stuff and bad stuff. God has grown me to be content and patient in what he gives me. But I just want to point out, you guys, that Joseph doesn't point in any direction but upward in reference to this entire climactic moment in his life with his brothers. He points to the Lord. God is the one who has done this. God is the one who has done this. His sovereign providential care in all circumstances enables my forgiveness of my brothers. Lastly, knowing what Joseph did regarding God's overarching power and care never produced a lazy, do-nothing spirit. 
Knowing what Joseph did regarding God's overarching power and care never produced a lazy, do-nothing spirit. Joseph trusted the Lord in the circumstances and continually worked hard, walked faithfully, and sought to give God all glory in every set of circumstances. Now, what what am I pointing at there? What I'm pointing at there is that Joseph trusting the Lord with the circumstances and with the details did not then leave Joseph with a lazy, do-nothing spirit where I just sit back and relax because God's in control. He didn't have that spirit. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, he was impatient. What I'm saying was he was not lazy. He was not disobedient. He was one who was ready, wise, and willing to walk in obedience to the Lord in whatever came in front of him. See, this is what's interesting. At times, folks will put together, or or at odds with one another, God's sovereignty and our work, our obedience, our walking as a believer. And I love what Mr. Spurgeon said years ago. Somebody said, how do you reconcile man's will and God's sovereignty? And he said, I have no need to reconcile friends. And I think what Mr. Spurgeon was saying was our desire to walk and honor and serve the Lord and our trust in his sovereignty do not cancel one another. They dovetail. Now, here's the tough part. People go, wow, Dan, can you tell me how they dovetail? A little bit. (laughs) But, But quite honestly, I don't know how all of that comes together. But what I do know, what I do see in Scripture is Joseph was an incredibly balanced follower of the Lord who at the end of everything could say God was completely in sovereign control and yet was the one who actually told the the cupbearer, if I recall, he said, remember me when you go and stand before Pharaoh and tell him about me. Well, why would you say that, Joseph? Just trust God. What's your problem? Well, wisdom and trust in the sovereignty of God are not at odds with one another. So being faithful hardworking and obedient while trusting in the perfect sovereignty of God seems to me a balanced biblical perspective. If it doesn't seem that way to you, talk to Mitch and he'll visit with you. But I believe a firm belief in the sovereign power of God should not, let me stop, I don't want to say never, should not disable a believer's work ethic. But rather, and this is the key, empower it. See, I believe that as we hold tightly to the truth that Almighty God is sovereign over all things, therefore, let us go in obedience. Let us serve him with all of our heart. And I'll give you exhibit A, and then we'll come to the table. Remember before Jesus said to go out and make disciples of all people, baptizing, teaching, all authority has been given unto me, is what he started by saying. And he didn't say, all authority has been given unto me, therefore, relax. He said, all authority has been given unto me, therefore, you go and you make disciples. See, the sovereignty of God, the power of God over all things, is what empowers our work ethic. It doesn't fight against it. Because of the circumstances and with the results of our labor. I know I said last, but we all know Dan's not human and lies a lot. So go to Acts chapter 4. Last verse, because there was a verse I was going to read earlier, and I want to go there. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. 
This is speaking in reference again to the variables and God's superintending purpose in the midst of that. Listen to what the Apostle says in this message. Verse 27, Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, two of the more powerful men of the day, along with, he just gives a big group, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Well, that's a way of basically saying everybody. They were all gathered against the Lord Jesus Christ to do what? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So I simply laid in front of you Joseph's story. But do you see, beloved, I lay in front of you the actual story of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross that all the variables came together to God's absolute, perfect, decreed will for the Son to be slain. I love this stuff. I just, I, I just love his word so much. Just seeing more and more angles on my God. Let's pray.